Please, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians. Here at uh, Folsom Bible Church, I remind you that we believe the Bible, the whole Bible, that the 66 books of your English Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is, that is a God-breathed Word you have in your lap there or even on your phone. This then is God's Word. It's not man's, it's God's Word. But it's God's Word through mere humans. God used men to write His Word. And as amazing as that is, the original autographs were perfect without error because God moved the man to write exactly what God wanted written. Okay? It's not man's opinion. Paul, the, the, book, the letter to the Ephesians is not Paul's opinion. The Holy Spirit moved him to write exactly what God wanted. And in so doing, right, the Word of God, the Bible, is the self-disclosure of God. It's His self-revelation. Through man, God has revealed Himself. He's revealed His will. He's revealed His mind and His heart. And so we then read and study and meditate upon the Scriptures in order to know the true God. This is where we will know Him. And so this is how we will know how to love Him, why to love Him, how to serve Him as He deserves and as He demands even. So in all that to say, when you open to the book of Ephesians, we are reading the word of the living God. And so if you're not, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And as you know, we've been working through this great epistle these last many weeks, and we've been exposed to many glorious soul-stirring truths that pertain to our mutual salvation in Christ. This is a great epistle, a great letter, as you know, as we've been working through this. And today we find ourselves in the Apostle Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus. And so we're going to see how he prays so that we can learn how to pray ourselves, not only for ourselves, but for each other. And so before we look at his prayer, I want to remind you, since it's been a couple weeks since we've been here in this letter, that where, we, where have we been I want to remind you that Paul opened the book of Ephesians in verse 3 on why we should bless God, why we should worship and praise God. In verse 3, chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's how he opens this letter. It's one long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. 202 Greek words make up that long section there. Verses 4 through 14 are the details of those blessings that he mentioned in verse 3. Some of those blessings would include election in verse 4, predestination in verse 5, redemption and forgiveness, future glory, sealed by the Holy Spirit so that you are safe and secure in Christ forever. That's all in that, that long sentence right there. Those are the blessings of why we should praise God, according to verse 3 through 14. Now, all these amazing spiritual jewels, is what we called them there, they are ours. All those truths mentioned in verses 3 through 14, all of those are equally, presently, fully ours. If you're in Christ... You are fully elect, you are fully predestined, you are fully forgiven, you're fully redeemed. All those truths are ours in totality, fullness. There's no degrees, right? Which is an amazing truth. Having laid that out to them in our 3 through 14, Paul laid that out for his readers to inform them as to what God has done for them in Christ. This is the basis of our spiritual unity if you're in Christ, whether you are in Tibet or in Bakersfield, right, you are united in Jesus Christ, and all those truths are yours no matter where you are. So this is the basis of the unity of the universal church. Okay? And unity is a big deal to God. And this is the basis of it. And having laid this out for them, of why they should stand firm, why they should be spiritually unified, why they should rejoice in in God, why they should praise His glory. He then comes to verse 15 in chapter 1, and there Paul moves to intercessory prayer for the saints. And we're, we have been, as we, this is our second or third week in this section here, we have been paying close attention to what makes up his prayers. 
because we want to learn from Paul on how to pray. What is, what is essential to God? What is crucial to God? What is important to God? We find here in these prayers of Paul's. Because the apostles moved by the Spirit. And isn't it interesting? He records and scripturated for every generation to see. This is how the Spirit moved Paul, and this is what he says to them so that they know how he's praying, so that they can know how to pray and what we should be pursuing. Okay? And so it's very informative. It's very, it's incredibly edifying to go through this. So the de- uh, some details to draw your attention to here is when you are interceding for other believers. Look at verse 16, just for an example. We've already looked at this, but I'm reminding you. Verse 16, Paul would say, when you intercede for other believers, be thankful. Be grateful to God for them. Look at verse 16. Do not see- Paul says, I do not give... I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. He is constantly in a humble posture of giving thanks to God for these people. Um, that's, a, that's the heart of intercessory prayer. Verse 17, you'll notice, and we looked at this last time, that as you intercede for other believers, we learn from Paul that the primary desire for them, the believers you, that you are praying for, is to grow even deeper in their personal experience of God. His, his desire is that you grow in the knowledge of God. If you think you know God now, and you're satisfied with that, you don't know Him at all. Okay? He can never be fully tapped. You can never fully experience Him. And once you have tasted of Him, you want nothing else but Him. And this is what Paul says in verse 17, that in order to grow, to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, He has granted a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Okay? So that was his primary concern here. He gave thanks for them. He moved into, I want you to grow in your knowledge of God, your experience of God. That pursuit began at conversion, and that continues out throughout our life, even on into eternity. You will never fully know God. And, and it begins at conversion, the pursuit of Him. And this is what Paul says. I'm praying that God gives you um, further revelation of Himself. Right? Um, that's good stuff. That should be exhilarating. Right? That's why heaven won't be boring. Right? You will grow in your knowledge of God. And that brings us then to verse 18. And here's the hub, really, of Paul's prayer in verse 18. And what he's going to mention here, we want for ourselves, and we want to pray for other believers to know this same thing in verses 18 and 19 in particular. This is the hub of his prayer. And you're going to notice in verse 18 and into 19 the repetition of the word what. Look at what it says in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, this is the New American Standard, be enlightened so that you will know, here's the first one, what is the hope of his calling? Secondly, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Verse 19, the third what, what is the surpassing greatness of his power? Okay, so this is the three-pronged, if you will, stool, the three-pronged hub of what God wants these Ephesians to know of what God is praying for them, okay? All right. Isn't it interesting to note that these three concerns in verses 18 and 19 are in the front of the mind of Paul, okay? He is most concerned for them in these areas because this, this is where he begins his prayer. Why is that? Well, they must understand these things in order to live in a manner worthy of God. If you don't understand those three what's there, you cannot live in a manner worthy of God. You cannot honor God with your life if you don't understand those three things. And we're going to see that as we unfold this. So we're going to observe today the first two. We're going to leave the third what in verse 19 for next time because it's so glorious. Um, But look at verse um, 18, if you would. The New American Standard and the ESV are different here, and we're going to just have to explain that briefly. Verse 18, my New American Standard has an italicized, I pray that. Okay? The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Your ESV says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Okay? There's a difference there. The, N- the NES has it as a request. It's a prayer request. The ESV sees it as something that's already been happened, already done. Okay? 
The Greek text, which is the basis of both NES and the ESV, says it like this. Listen to how this translates, word for word from the Greek text. Having been enlightened, the eyes of your heart. That's how it literally reads. So the ESV is more in line with the Greek text than the NES, okay? Which hurts my heart because I'm an NES guy. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to go with the ESV. Hope that doesn't confuse anybody. Are we okay with this? Okay. The difference would be a request for something to happen or something that's already happened to you. And verse 18 is it's something that has already happened to you if you are in Christ Jesus. Okay. So we're going to use that route. It's a perfect passive. All your grammarians, you should be grammarians because grammar's life, okay? Perfect tense verb, right, is something that happened in the past, completed act with ongoing, continual results, okay? So it's something that was done in the past, finished, and the results of that act continue to this day. Passive means it was done to you. You didn't do it, you received it. So this verse 18, the enlightenment is not something that you and I did. It's not something you and I pursue. It's something that has happened to you. Okay? And it was something done at some time in the past that is not continuing on in the sense he's continuing to enlighten you. He already turned the light on and it stays on forever. Okay? He's not continually turning the light on. It's already on when he saved you and that has stayed with you all the way to this day. Okay? Now, um, so then, we are then, in verse 18, using the ESV, having been enlightened, Paul begins here in this verse 18 to remind them of something that has already happened to them. Therefore, they are in a state of enlightenment. They are in a continual condition of being enlightened. Okay, You know what that means? There's no such thing as a true Christian who's in the dark. There's no such thing as a true Christian who is in the dark because this has already happened to you. doesn't mean you have full knowledge of everything. That means the light's on and you haven't taken advantage of everything in the room. Savvy? Yeah, there's a big difference. And we'll see this, right? So we're going to have to get our arms around when did this happen? We'll, we'll notice that. And what is the eyes of your heart? Okay, what is the eyes of your heart? Well, in Scripture, the heart refers to the inner person, the seat of our emotions, the seat of our affections. It is our true self. Our true inner self is our heart. Okay? Man looks on the outer, but God looks at what? The heart. Okay? All right. So God looks at the true self. Okay? The appearance may show one thing when the heart says something else. Jesus said of the Pharisees, listen, Matthew 15, verses 7 through 8. This is perfect. Jesus says to the Pharisees, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Okay? So your lips can say one thing, outer appearance, but who you really are is your heart. Okay? The heart is also synonymous with the mind. Okay, it's not the Bible does not make this bifurcation. It doesn't separate. The heart and mind are synonymous. Listen to the same chapter in Matthew. Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew 15, quote, "But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart." Verse 19, "For out of the heart come evil thoughts." Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Okay, so it's synonymous. The heart and the mind are synonymous. The heart and the mind are the true inner self. God even says throughout Scripture, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Those are not four different aspects of my personality. Those, that's just a biblical way of saying your whole person. All of you. Okay. So then, right, the eyes of your heart refers to your understanding, your comprehension, your thinking, your mind, your emotions. It's an enlightenment so that you have a clear understanding or perception. A clear understanding or perception. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. And just for the sake of time, because I have 4,000 verses to go to, you don't have to follow me. You can if you want, but at least write these down. 
because it'd be worth your mind to see this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, But a natural man, that is a man without the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand or comprehend them because they are spiritually appraised. Okay? That which is clear to you since conversion is still in the dark to the one who's not saved. How many times have you shared this simple gospel to someone they said, that just doesn't make sense. What do you mean it doesn't make sense? It can't get more simple than Christ died, buried, and crucified or resurrected. There's nothing more clear than that. How did you come to understand that? Spirit of God. Right? So the eyes of your heart is, is your understanding and your perception. This then, the, to be enlightened in your perception, the eyes of your heart, at conversion, the Holy Spirit has come upon you to make you one spiritually alive when you were once dead. He has made you, gave spiritual sight when you were once blind. Right? He's caused you to be born again. See? At conversion, then, he shone the light of God into your mind, into your heart, into your soul. Okay? So that you are now in a state of enlightenment. The Holy Spirit, who came to dwell in the person who believes at conversion, does he ever leave? He never leaves the Christian, does he? If he did, you'd be spiritually dead. He's fixed. Amen? Romans 8.11 says, you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not of Christ. So the Christian, true believer, never is void of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're, we're commanded to be filled and to walk and to be led, but we are command, we're not commanded to have Him indwell us. He comes and indwells us permanently. Okay, He then brings light to our minds. Spiritual illumination. What does that imply? Is that you and I need to be spiritually illumined. We're not born spiritually enlightened. We're, we're born spiritually blind. Yeah? Go back to Ephesians if you left with me. If not, go to Ephesians 4, please. I have a few verses I want to show you here to kind of lay this out. should encourage us greatly. For those who are in Christ, we have the light of God. We have the light of God. Look at Ephesians 4.17. The need for illumination is proven here. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles, unbelievers, also walk in, notice, in the futility of their mind, verse 18, being darkened in their what? In their mind or understanding, excluded, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Okay? That's how you and I were before God saved us. I was 29 years old. I had a lot of practice in that stuff right there. Right? But in a moment, God comes and says, let there be light. And now you understand things you never studied. How did I know abortion is sin? When just 10 minutes ago, I never cared. I mean, immediately. It's like, that is wrong. How do you know that's wrong? Spirit of God. Right? How do you know Christ is who He is? Because I'm so brilliant? <laughs> are you kidding? It's because, boom, He shed light. And you go, man, that's who you are. You see? It's illumination. He's always been in the room. You've just been blind. But then He enlightens your mind, and now you see these things. You see? This is what's going on. This is the need for it, because we are, being, we are darkened in our understanding. Um, I, I, I want to take you to Romans 1, please. Romans 1, look at verse, how about 20? We'll start there in 20 of Romans 1, verse 20. Just a few verses to again show why we need spiritual illumination. Verse 20 says, For since, <coughs> excuse me, the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks. And as a result of that, look at what happened. But they became futile in their what? 
In their thoughts, NES has speculations, and their foolish heart was what? Darkened. So dark, verse 22 is true. They professed to be wise. They became fools. How was that shown? How was that foolishness expressed? Verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. That's fallen man. Why do they worship animals? Why do they worship false gods? It's because their heart is darkened. Because they have exchanged the knowledge of the true God for that of the false. Okay? Their mind is darkened. Their heart is darkened. Um, one other place, please. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verse 3 of the fourth chapter. We'll just read down here a few. This is one of my favorite passages. Verse 3 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, covered, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Okay, Perishing is to go to hell. Verse 4, In whose case, whose case? The perishing. The God, little g, devil, of this world has already blinded what? Not their eyes, but their minds of the unbelieving. What is the result of this blindness? So that they might not see, comprehend the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You wonder why they don't understand your gospel? Right there. Not only are they spiritually dead, but the blindness of Satan covers their eyes. They're not able to see. They're blinded. You see, they're blinded. And what is it they can't see? The light of the gospel, which comes from the glory of Christ. They can't see him for who he is. The radiant perfections and glory of Christ, they cannot comprehend. But you do. By grace, he has done verse 6. Look at verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. That's reference to Genesis 1-3. When God said, let there be light. That's what he's referencing. The God who said that in Genesis 1-3 is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, that's the illumination that you're constantly under. At conversion, this is what happened to you. This is how you came to see the glorious Christ is worth everything so that you threw everything off the ship and said, I want him. That's the only way that happens, right there. Spiritual illumination, right? It's glorious. So then, go back to Ephesians. This is what Paul's referencing in a sense here when he says in Ephesians 1.18, Having been enlightened, the eyes of your heart... God has already shown in your heart and given this knowledge, given this understanding of who Christ is. He then says in verse 18, look at here what follows in verse 18, so that the result of this illumination of your heart, verse 18, so that you will know, comprehend is a word for know, what, first one, what is the hope of his calling? So you and I have a, a, a spiritual illumination that Paul says that illumination allows us to see the what of the hope of his calling. There is no, there is no excuse for ignorance. He has shown light into your heart. Now we need to take advantage of that which he has shown. And what is he that he has shown? The first thing he wants us to know is what, what, Content, details, the hope of his calling. That's good stuff. All right. Now think about this. The hope of his calling. The calling of God. The details of that. We have God's effectual call. That is, when he calls somebody through the gospel, the elect will respond because it's effectual in your heart. You see, the general call goes out and everybody hears the call of the gospel to repent and believe in Christ. But the only ones who respond, this is the effectual call. It's effectual in your heart because God has chosen it to be so. You see, and maybe the person next to you doesn't even hear the details of what you hear. How is it that you heard those details is that God in his sovereign, wonderful grace said, come here, boy. 
Lazarus, come forth. That's the effectual call, you see? And so you wake up. It wakes you up. And you come forth. What is it that he's called you to? What is, what is it that the, the hope of the calling, his callings, listen to this, listen to this. Because this, this is true of all of us. And if you don't understand this, you cannot live in a manner worthy of Christ. You fall short. Now listen to this. The gospel calls us to repentance and faith in Christ. But more than that, what is contained in the call is the call to eternal life. It's a call out of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. It's a call to eternal glory. It's a call to joy in the presence of God. You see, that, that's the hope of His calling. Because what is hope? Hope is a confident expectation that God will do that which He has promised. And hope doesn't look backwards, because who hopes for what they already have? Hope looks forward, you see. So this is the future promises of the gospel that Paul says, I want you to make sure your mind having been illumined, you make sure you fill that with the truth of the gospel, the future promises of the gospel. And isn't it interesting that the first thing he starts with, the first real prayer request that he makes forward, the first thing he wants us to know is where our hope is. What our hope is. We sang the song, Jesus is our only hope. Amen. But even in that, it's all that he promises, you see. Now, the hope is the gospel's future promises, and they're all based on Christ's resurrection. Okay? Now, I want to take you some glorious passages. I hope this blesses you, but let's begin in First Peter. You can turn there if you like. If not, please write it down. Take note of it. Excuse me. First Peter 1. I have five or six verses I want to take you to. that Because this will, this, will this will give substance, clarity to what you're hoping for. Okay? Listen to First Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, what did He do, has caused us, sovereign grace, to be born again to what? A living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay? So the born again... You see, salvation is not about here and now. Oh, we have blessings here and it's, it's wonderful, but we're still in a tough old world, man. Right? If this, is, if this is the end of it, it's a bad joke, frankly. Right? But it's not about this. The promises of God are not, are not for here. There are some... But it's for there. And this is what he says. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of our living, present living hope. We have a living. It's not dead. It's living. It's active right now. But it's looking forward, you see. And it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? It's based on his resurrection. Okay? Um, look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. Second Thessalonians 2. One verse will work. Verse 14, please. It was for this, Paul writes in verse 14, He called you, how? Through our gospel, for what purpose? Gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, the gospel is not merely for here and now. The gospel is a living hope, future-oriented. What is the future promises is that you would gain, apprehend, possess, verse 14, the glory of Jesus Christ. You see? That's part of your hope, beloved. Okay? That there is glory awaiting. I'm afraid so many Christians are so earthbound, they're so caught up in present-day stuff, that they've lost track of what the gospel's really about. It's future. We're all caught up about what we're going to work, how much money we're going to make, where we're going to drive, where we're going to go. That has nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing. That's worldly stuff. And that steals joy. And it steals hope, you see. We need to return to what God has promised. And what has God promised? His future glory with Jesus Christ. I will apprehend. I will gain the glory of Christ. You see, 
that, 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 that helps me look over this world, you see. Um, I don't expect things from this world like I used to, you see. He's weaning me because of my age and experience, but we should get there quicker by understanding the gospel. It's future-oriented. Okay, um, 1 Peter 5, please. 1 Peter 5. Verse 10. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. This is so... So, 10 says, After you have suffered for a little while... Gives no time period there, but compared to eternity, a little while could be 80 years. Right? There's no time period here. But whatever it's compared to is a little while. (laughs) After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace... Who called, there's our word again, called you to what? His eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, it's future-oriented, right? He's called you to future glory. We need to remind ourselves of those things. From there, please go to Romans 8. Romans 8, if it's not, should be one of your favorite chapters in the Bible. This is, this is uh, Mount Everest of, of theology, man. In Romans 8, it's, it's, it's a chapter that refers to the Holy Spirit 18 times. And, it, and it's coming off a letter that Romans, as you know, is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. This is the gospel laid out and explained. And how do we live in this life as gospel believers? How do we live out this justification? Romans 8 says it's by the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to point to future, because look at verse, I'm going to say verse 20. Um, but I'm, in, I'm going to back up, sorry, even to 17. Look at 8.17 of Romans. He says, If children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And then the second half of 17. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. So suffering precedes glory in the plan of God. And the way you're going to endure present suffering is understanding the future hope. You understand? It's not just sucking it up and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you're just double tough. No, there's a future that I expect so that I can can endure the present sufferings because I have an expectation of what God has promised. You see? Look at the rest of this. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isn't that amazing? Now get that again. Present sufferings, future glory. He's not minimizing suffering. Some people suffer horrendous things on this planet. Yes? What is he, what is he doing? He's maximizing the glory. Compared to the sufferings in verse 18, the glory far exceeds it. How great must the glory be? You can, you can imagine the worst suffering that a, human, that a Christian could experience. And that is minuscule compared to the glory to be revealed. How great is the glory? Right? That's my hope, dude. That's my future hope. Okay, continue, please. Verse, 20, or verse 19 says it like this, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the, revelation, the revealing of the sons of God, future-oriented, verse 20, For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that is, in Genesis, during the fall, sin has then put creation under the curse. Verse 20, the end says, In hope, 21, that the, the creation itself also will be set free, future from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see the second half of verse 21? Our hope is found there in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Freedom from what? Freedom from corruption. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the curse. That's what creation is longing for. I'm hoping for that. I will, you won't recognize me because I'll be perfect. 
righteous. You'll say, man, sounds like Tom, but it sure don't look like him. Sure don't act like him. Right? <laughs> look at 22. For we know whole creation groans, present tense, and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly, that's us, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You see, this is our hope. This is what our hope is. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, our physical body is going to be redeemed. Resurrected, reunited with my spirit to live forever with God in His presence. That's our hope. Because look at the next two verses of 24-25. For in hope we have been saved. Isn't that the hope of the gospel? Yes, it is. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? 25. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. That's glorious stuff. Glorious stuff. Look at 829, please. Our future hope includes this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's hope. That's the Christian's future hope. That's included in this freedom from corruption. You're going to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. I'm afraid a lot of professing believers, they're not interested in this. They're not interested in this. That's sad. Because this is what the gospel is all about. It's not about here and now. It's not to make your life better here. In fact, it might make it a lot harder. But it makes it a lot better there. <laughs> it makes it a lot better there. And so my hope, how you persevere, is, is the last verse we read in 25. Perseverance, we wait for what God has promised. And faith and trust in God is proven by your perseverance under all kinds of afflictions and sufferings and persecutions because you believe what God said in the gospel, you will attain the glory of Jesus. That's good stuff. Oh, that's good stuff. Well, go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, one other place, please. 1 Corinthians 15. There's, there's a glory that we will possess. He, st- he, he begins talking about it in verse 40, but we're not going to pick it up until verse 46. 1546 and following. Look at what he says here. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. There's a sequence. And he's talking about resurrection. Verse 47. The first man is from the earth, Adam. He's earthy. The second man, Christ, is from heaven. Verse 48. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Like is like. Like begets like. Okay? As Adam is in his fallen natural state in his human flesh, so are those who are in Adam. Earthy. Christ, as he is, so are those who are in Christ. Okay? Look at the verse, look at verse 49. What does your text start with? In 49? Okay, there you go. Just as. Just as. So in the same manner that we, 49, have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Do you see the promise is so secured that all you have to do is touch your hand. Are you in the, are you in the image of Adam? Yeah, just look in the mirror. That, that verse is telling you, as you look in the mirror, as you look at your own hand and touch it, the reality of that is the proof that the future promise of resurrecting Christ-like glory is coming. My goodness. There is no excuse to be hopeless for the Christian. Paul's praying for the Ephesians. I want you to use the spiritual illumination that that you've already received at conversion and I want you to fill your mind with the details of the hope of the gospel. And that is future glory, Christ-likeness, 
delivered from corruption. A resurrection body that will shine like the midday sun, says Daniel 12.2 and Matthew 13.43. We will radiate, we will reflect the glory of God. That is our hope, beloved. That is our hope. And Paul begins here. Go back to Ephesians, please. In verse 18, that's his first starting place. I want you to know the hope of his calling. Why is hope essential? For anybody, but we're the Christians are the only ones that have a true basis for hope, right? The world is hopeless. Really, they, they have no basis for true hope. But we have basis for hope. In, but in anybody's life, be they saved or not, we, they all have to have hope, right? What, what is the, what, why is hope so essential? Why do we need hope? What does it do for us? Today even. Did you have any hope at all when you got out of bed? Why did you even get out of bed if you have no hope? If I didn't have no hope, I'd still be in bed. Right? Why did you get up? Looking for a hope? <laughs> I sure hope I find some hope. Right? What does hope do? Helps us persevere. Yes, ma'am. Say that again loud. Helps us persevere. Oh, you are a gold star. Doesn't it? It helps us persevere. Look at First Thessalonians. Chapter one. That's a that is so that is awesome. 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul lays it out there. I think it's verse 4. It might be 3. It's 3, actually. Look at what he says. He says he's praying for them in verse 2. And then he's, why is he praying for them and thankful? Verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and then what's your text say? Steadfastness. Steadfastness of hope or perseverance of hope. Hope produces perseverance. If you have no hope, you'll flounder. You fall into the abyss. Christian, take advantage of what God has illumined your mind to. A hopeless Christian is a blasphemer of God. Think about that. You live as though God's lied to you. you. You're living as though God is not true to His Word. No matter the trial. And there's some tough trials. But our hope is fixed in God because of who He is, you see? And the testimony to the world is, is the, the anchor of your soul in the midst of heavy seas. My goodness. This is hard, but I'm resting in God. Right? I'm resting in God. So hope is essential, and it's fascinating. Back to Ephesians. That's where Paul starts. And he wants us to know the hope of his calling, what it is that God has called you to, his eternal glory, his Christ-likeness, future bliss in his presence. Wow. And he wants us to comprehend these things. And with these facts fixed in our mind and understood and embraced, we will then embrace and endure, and we will even flourish in and through present sufferings. Because it anchors our soul. So from that future hope, Paul moves on to the second one, which we'll blast here in verse 18. Notice where he goes from there. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? This is amazing stuff as well. Now, I want you to notice something there in verse 18, that second what there. It says, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Notice it's the Father's inheritance, not the Christian's inheritance. And notice that it's the Father's inheritance in the saints. Okay, so what is it saying? It's saying that the saints are that which God will inherit. We have an inheritance. The Bible speaks about our inheritance. That's true. But there's also, Ephesians 1.11 says it like this, and we've already looked at that a couple weeks back. But we are God's inheritance. The elect belong to God. The saints are God's special possession, His portion of all the people on the planet. There are the elect, which is God's portion. Okay? God's possession. Um, 
The elect are his treasure. If you would hold your finger here, go back to Deuteronomy, a couple places I want to show you in the Old Testament that prove this is how he treated Israel and it's how he treats his church. In Deuteronomy 7, sorry, that's the fourth, fifth book in your Bible. <laughs> Deuteronomy 7. Moses preaching to the second generation is reminding that second generation of really who they are. In verse, we'll pick it up in verse 6, if you would. He says to them in 7 6, For you, Israel, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Notice, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God made a very special choice of Israel. Of all the peoples. Okay? And they're his own possession. They are his portion. And and it's verse 7, you have to put in there too, right? Because the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Okay? Unconditional election. God chooses some for himself, not based on anything in you and I. It's simply his grace. In fact, it's in spite of you and I. Right? It's, it's before we do anything good or bad. It's entirely of His grace. And He chose you for His possession. He chose you to be His portion of all the people on the planet. These are my people. This is my inheritance. So Scripture says. Go to Deuteronomy 32, please. And this makes sense, right? This is how a daddy would treat his daughter. You're my, you're my princess, right? You're my treasure. And there's nothing inherently good in us that causes God to say that. He just wants to love you. And He chose you to love you. And He lavishes His affection on you because He wants to. And that's why we're His portion, right? Look at 32, verse 9. He says, For the Lord's portion is His people... Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Now, this is obviously Israel, but it transfers over to the church as God's elect. Okay? Israel is God's inheritance. His people are his inheritance, his portion. From there, go to Titus 2. So you go to the New Testament, way over to the right to Titus 2. And you kind of see the same idea here in Titus 2, in verse 14. Okay? And look what it says in verse 14. Who gave himself, this is Christ, for us to redeem us, purchase us, from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people, notice, for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. But God made a purchase through the blood of his Son to redeem, to gather to himself his people known as his possession. Okay, So you are, by grace, God's treasure, God's portion, God's people, God's children, God's bride. I don't know about you, that makes me nine foot tall and bulletproof. And who cares what anybody says about you? God says, you're mine. And you're my inheritance. And it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with who you are, who you might have been, or what you're even going to be has nothing to do with that at all. It has all of grace. He simply chose you, Tino, because he wanted to lavish his love on you. Only because he wanted to. Isn't that glorious? Yes. Paul's second part of his prayer is, I, not only do I want you to know the details of what God has promised for you in the future through the gospel, but I want you to know that you're God's treasure. See, those future things are future plans of God, but they have a present day impact. Persevere through trials and sufferings and afflictions. Things that come into your life now that don't seem so nice, is it because God all of a sudden doesn't love you? No, you're His inheritance. You're His treasure. All things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Either that's true or it ain't. And it is. Isn't that fascinating? That means everything that comes into your life, beloved, is ultimately good. <laughs> Whoa. It's ultimately good. We may not understand it now, 
We might later. We might in heaven. But this is where trust comes. I trust you, Lord. My hope's in heaven. You're my hope. And I realize I'm your treasure. I'm your portion. Praise be to God. Now notice, go back to Ephesians and we'll... we'll Try to finish this. <laughs> Look at what he says about this inheritance in verse 18. Notice what he says. Look at the length. This is amazing. What are, look at this, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? So there is a, a glory connected to his people and it's the riches of his glory it's the value of this glory that his people possess or more correctly that God places on them you see this is the glory the value connected with God's elect not in themselves inherently but naturally not naturally but that which God grants them and I hope you don't mind me taking you to John 17 These are like pearls on a string, beloved. You should hang around your neck and meditate on day and night. So that you can flourish through trials. John 17. Look at verse 20. 20, 20. Let's see. Lord, where did I put here? 24, I want to say. How about uh, 22. Twenty-two, please. Seventeen, twenty-two. Sorry. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, "The glory which you have given me, I have given where to them." And in this prayer, this the, the them or those who are going to believe after the apostles. So this includes us. The glory the Father gave to the Son, He gives to His own, that they may be one just as we are one. The spiritual unity is because of the mutual glory, the shared glory. You know what that means? Possess Christ's glory, possess Christ's glory, possess Christ's glory. And there's no levels of possession of the glory, you see. So there's a spiritual unity right there at conversion because He gave you His glory, He gave you His glory, He gave you His glory, He gave you His glory. The riches of the glory of his inheritance is the glory that he grants to you. You see, the value that you possess is a given value by God, not an inherent value, you see. And so he sets you apart as his portion to lavish all of this glory on you. And it makes him happy. (laughs) Makes me happy that he's happy with that. Um, Look at 2 Peter Please, Second um, Peter one. I, and I try to show you different, so many different places because I want you to see the thread of Scripture that this is this is not some aberrant thought. This is what God wants His people to know. Second Peter one. Look at verse. I'm going to say uh, four, three, and four. Please. Excuse me, look what it says, verse 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us, already done, everything pertaining to life and godliness, how? Through the true knowledge, the full knowledge, experiential knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, verse 4, for by these things just mentioned, He has granted to us, believers, His precious and magnificent promises, so that result, purpose, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You see, we partake the divine nature. I possess, you possess, God's very nature. He gave that. He implanted that in your soul when He saved you. And that's what He's invigorating and moving upon in making you more like Jesus Christ. 
You see, so the, 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 the riches of the glory of God's people is this shared glory with Christ and this, this, this nature that God grants you that is growing into Christ's likeness. This is the portion that he rejoices in upon all the people that have ever existed. The elect he rejoices over because they all equally share his nature and they share his glory. Man. And so his thought of you is treasure. Conformed, predestined to be conformed into his very image, you see. Now, we then are his own people, his portion. Therefore, he sees you and he treats you as his special treasure. Right now, you are objects of his affection. Some of us might be in the woodshed, <laughs> being disciplined. But according to Hebrews 12, he disciplines only those who he what? Loves. So if you're being disciplined, praise God. It's evidence that you're a child of God and all these promises are yours. So take me to the woodshed again. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> right? So what is God in this rejoicing? Go to Zephaniah if you can find it in your Bible. Right? Zephaniah 3. The older I get, the more I love this verse because the picture of it just makes me happy. Um, And I like being happy the older I get. Zephaniah 3, listen to verse 17. This is God speaking to Israel in the future, but it includes His people, us. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's in their midst. Okay, look at this now. A victorious... Warrior. What's he doing over Israel? In verse 17. He will exult over you with joy. Rejoice. Can you imagine? God, the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, righteous one, is going to rejoice over you? The clearest thing I can think of would be parents rejoicing over their children or someone rejoicing over their favorite whatever. You're rejoicing because of someone. God is said in verse 17 as a victorious warrior exulting over you with joy. He's happy. God is happy. Look at what he goes on to say. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with what? Joyful singing. singing. My NAS has shouts of joy. Now, I know we're pretty Baptists around here, but that's almost charismatic right there. Right? Praise God. Praise God. What would cause you to have shouts of joy? Just think of yourself. What would make you get out of your seat and go, yes! Right? We do it. Maybe it's basketball. Maybe it's whatever causes you to do. Think about it in your mind. What is it that would cause you to jump out of your seat and go, yeah! It's, huh? (laughs) Yeah, win the lottery, right? God says of himself that he is moved to shouts of joy. Over his people. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. He will result, he will exult over you, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Well, if that one doesn't light your fire, go to Isaiah 62. I'll pray for you if that one doesn't light your fire. Right, 62, 4 and 5. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. It'll no longer be said of you forsaken. He's talking about future glory for Israel, future glory for His people. Okay. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. 
But to you will be called, My delight is in her. My delight is in her. God's delight is in His people. And in this context, it's future Israel. Of which we are of His bride. He delights in His people. Okay? Now look at this. God is the one who says, I will delight in you. Or let's see, verse 4. For you will be called, My delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you. And to him your land will be married. Verse 5. This is amazing. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I don't know. Do you believe that? I doubt it. Frankly. I don't think we read that very much. But think about that. I don't mean us here. But just general. God rejoices over you. Get used to it. (laughs) Ephesians 5. Two more places. Two more places. Ephesians 5. This is, this is uh, husbands loving your wives as Christ loves the church. Right? And look at how he gets to Christ loving the church. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, look at 29, but nourishes, present tense, and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. That's present tense. Nourishes and cherishes. Nourishes to provide that which is needed for growth. Cherishes is is basically to treat special. To cherish something or someone is to set it aside as something unique and special. The idea would be um, a, a care, there's a in that word cherish is this idea of carefulness. And the picture that comes into my mind is like fine china. You don't just throw it around. You're careful with it. There's a tenderness to it. This this word is used in Deuteronomy of a mother bird setting down on her eggs. Right? They don't just plop down. Right? But they go down. So that's this idea of cherish. Jesus Christ is said in verse 29 to nourish and cherish his people. Right now he does. Right now he does. Okay, one other place. John 12. I hope this encourages you. It's meant to. (laughs) Um, Makes me happy. John 12. Look at verse 26. Somebody look at 26. Tell me, what is... What is the Father going to do to you? Verse 26. Say again. They will honor. The Father will honor who? The one who serves. Yeah. The one who serves Christ. God the Father will honor them. Not just in this life, but in the next life. Listen, ah, I have to, just came to my brain. Listen to Luke 12. Listen to this, please. Luke 12. This is amazing. This is talking future again, okay? He says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. He's talking about second coming parable. He says, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself, and this is referring to Christ, to serve and have them, His people, recline at the table, and He, Christ, will come up and wait on them. Christ will wait on you in the future. Isn't that fascinating? Where do we have a picture of that before he was crucified? John 13. He took on the apron slave and went down and washed their feet. Christ, we don't serve Christ because he needs anything. 
But He serves us because we need everything. And Christ is our servant. Even though He's our King, He is our servant. And He honors His own. He, he loves and lavishes affection on you. He is nourishing and cherishing you right now. And He will honor you, set you aside in heaven as His portion. He will dance over you, rejoice over you, exult and praises over you. He loves you now. He will love you forever and for eternity. You are objects of His praise, object of His affections now. So that that everything works together for good for those who love Him. He is orchestrating everything in your life according to His affection for you. And His plan for you is the hope of the gospel, the hope of the calling. And Paul's praying, saying, Beloved, you've been illumined to these things. Now fill your mind with these truths and settle them in your heart so that you can stay the course because this life is tough. You have afflictions, you have sufferings and persecutions. How are you going to live for the, in a manner worthy of God? You must understand the future hope of the gospel and you must understand that God treasures you. And the next thing we'll look at next week is the power that belongs to God to help you live this out. Dude, I sure wish being a Christian was worth it. Right. So let us, let us meditate on these things. Let us, let us absorb these things. Let us embrace these things. And I will say this, all that we looked at today is for God's elect. Okay? To which I would ask, are you of the elect? How do you know? Are you trusting in Christ? How do you know you're trusting in Christ? Are you loving the brethren? Are you loving the brethren? If you're here and you're not sure, look to Jesus Christ hanging there on that cross, crucified in your place. Look to Him as the only hope of escaping eternal wrath. Look to Him as your payment. Look to Him as buried and raised from the dead. And if you place your trust in this Jesus Christ, you too shall be raised from the dead to be with Him forever and ever. And that hope that I just hopefully tried to give to you is yours. And realize that you are a treasure to the Creator. Because He chose to. That's good stuff. Let's pray and uh, you'll sing again. Well, Father, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises. Help us to take these promises to our heart. Remind ourselves of these truths. We thank You that we can embrace these things. And by Your power, we can live these things out. And I pray for anyone here, Father, who has not repented and is not trusting you, that you would do a work in their heart and bring them to yourselves. And the angels will rejoice over one sinner who repents. We give you the glory and the praise for you are worth it all. In Jesus' name, amen.